now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the second episode of our Medical Legal Death Investigation special release season, Just Science interviews John Fudenberg, the coroner for Clark County, Nevada. Listen along as Just Science explores commonalities and differences between the coroner and medical examiner systems to highlight pervading issues and forecast improvements within the MDI community. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, the project director for the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. And today we're going to be continuing to discuss issues related to medical legal death investigation. And we're very, very fortunate to have with us today the coroner for Clark County, which covers Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, John Fudenberg, who is, I'm sure, well known to many of you who are professionals in the field of medical legal death investigation. For those of you who don't know John and aren't deeply into that community, you have a rare chance today to find out more about somebody who runs one of the top coroner systems in the country, but also is a leader more broadly in medical legal death investigation. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. I I appreciate that, and I appreciate the kind words. I'm honored to have you say that I'm a leader and our office is one of the top. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you for that. So right now, you're reviewing or investigating over 14,000 deaths per year. That's an incredible caseload for you all to be managing and must be very, very difficult. And you also cover a wide area. So it isn't just the city of Las Vegas, but you actually cover a broader area for Clark County. It says 8,000 square miles. Geographically, how does that translate so people can get a kind of a picture in their head about the volume and the size of responsibility that Clark County has? Sure, absolutely, and, and you're correct. We, <clears throat> The city of Las Vegas is within Clark County. Um, our office is responsible for all of Clark County, and it's just over 8,000 square miles. Close to 95% of our population is right here in what we refer to as the Las Vegas Valley. Um, it's, it's fairly densely populated, and then we our jurisdiction extends all the way down 90 miles to the south. We have a population center in Laughlin, Nevada, right along the Colorado River. And to the north, we have a few more population centers. Uh, Mesquite, Nevada is the bigger of the communities in our northern area, and that's uh, just about 80 miles north of us on the Arizona-Nevada border. And then we cover the majority of Lake Mead falls within our jurisdiction, and the state line goes right down the middle of the Hoover Dam and it extends <laughs> down the Colorado River. So so we have that on the east side of our county. And then in the northwest, we actually have a ski resort in our county, and that's Mount Charleston. We have quite a diverse county when it comes to responding to scenes. Beautiful in Clark County, so you're quite quite privileged to be a part of all that. And uh, John's been either the coroner or assistant coroner since 2003 in Clark County. One of the things that's interesting about coroner systems, I think, is sometimes they'll be in a sheriff's office, which I assume you must be. And just from your own personal you know, position, 
kind of how does that work in Clark County? The majority of coroners and medical examiners' offices in the U.S. do not have additional responsibilities outside of the medical legal realm. So even if it's a sheriff coroner system, they generally have a bureau or a division that's the coroner division that strictly works in the medical legal profession. Um, it is a little unique when they fall under a sheriff's department or a law enforcement agency. We're actually not part of the law enforcement system here. We're uh, just a county agency. So we're, as many believe, you know, many of the people that are interested in medical legal systems believe that it's appropriate to be 100% independent from law enforcement. And that is how we're set up here in Clark County. We're a county office that it does not fall under the authority of law enforcement. We don't fall under the authority of the prosecution. We're independent from prosecution and defense, which I, I think is somewhat of a model system. And, and most people in the medical legal community would agree that ideally you would have a system that is 100% independent from law enforcement. Yeah, so are you appointed or are you elected as the coroner of Clark County? And Good question. A lot of people think that coroners are all elected, and the majority of them are. I've heard a number, I don't know if this is accurate, but I've heard a number of 82% of the coroners in the country are elected. We are not. The coroner's position here is not elected. It's appointed by the Clark County Commission, so it's an appointment. There's no terms. You know, they appoint me until they don't want me to work here any longer or I quit or <laughs> retire. So hopefully that'll be quite some time. And, and which, again, I think is something that a lot of people would tell you is ideal. There's pros and cons to an elected position, clearly. Uh, one of the cons is that you potentially have a new coroner or department head come in every four years on an election cycle, and that can be difficult. This is, in my opinion, it's a very complex process. And, you know, having the, the coroner be elected and, and potentially rotate a new department head every four years can really be detrimental to an office because it's the continuity. And, you know, I'll tell you, I've been here with this office for over 15 years now, and I learn something new every day. To So to think that you'd have a new person running the office every four years is kind of scary to me. Yeah, I imagine so. Well, so far, so good. They're obviously happy with you, even though you've had a lot of challenges in Las Vegas, not only in terms of caseload, but of course, uh, another podcast we're going to do with you is on the uh, very, very serious mass shooting that you all had in Las Vegas. But the reason why we're having you on today is this issue of the distinction between medical examiner offices and coroner offices. And I think you certainly are aware, John, and, and I am aware that uh, this is a long-standing debate. It's been going on since National Academy's report, oh, I guess probably the 1920s or 30s on this topic. And it's not a debate that has moved very far, <laughs> unfortunately, during that time. John wrote an article with Randy Hanslick. It's in the Academy of Forensic Pathology Journal from 2014. And we'll link to that from the podcast page. But the title, I think, is instructive here, Coroner versus Medical Examiner Systems, Can We End the Debate? The real issue is, as said by Greg Davis, we need to shift our focus from our differences to those goals that we share, the goals being you know, better medical legal death investigation systems. And how can we kind of put aside whatever arguments there are about what is basically a jurisdictional structural issue that has 
deep historical roots in each of the places that uh, choose either to have medical examiner systems or coroner systems and instead think about how to improve practice more generally. We do also have a podcast that we did with Randy. John, I think you and I are both fans of, of Randy's country music, <laughs> but of course he was also has also been a leader within the medical examiner community and an advocate for medical examiners for a long time. And so we'll also link for those of who want to hear Randy's podcast, sort of listen to his point of view on this topic as well. John, how did you and Randy start to work on this issue? I mean, did you all start from the same place with respect to this issue of trying to get past the debate of coroners versus medical examiners? Or how did you two actually start to, to work on this problem? First of all, I'd like to, you know, when you talk about Randy Hanslick and you talk about Dr. Greg Davis in Alabama, these are, in my opinion, I don't know too many people I respect more than the two of them. They're both forensic pathologists, so they're medical doctors, medical examiners, very well respected in the the medical examiner community, and just I have a great deal of respect for both of them. Randy and I, uh, boy, I don't know what year it was, but it was probably close to 2010 when SWIG MDI, and that's the Scientific Working Group on Medical Legal Death Investigations, it was a group that, that was formed by the National Institute of Justice. And the idea of a scientific working group, there was, I think, 21 or 22 of them, one for each of the forensic science disciplines. So the medical legal profession had their own working group. And since its inception, it was, I think, convened for maybe six or seven years, maybe a little less. Randy and I co-chaired that uh, that group, and and I think we did a lot of great work. There was a lot of very reasonable, motivated, and uh, passionate people on that on that work group. And the idea is to create standards, guidelines, and best practices within each of the forensic science disciplines. So that's what we were tasked to do, and we published quite a few standards and guidelines and best practices. But Randy, he may not know this, but he's always been a mentor of mine. I've always respected his outlook on 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 the profession and as we co-chaired the SWIG MDI throughout the years I think what we really tried to bring was a balance and not continue this debate of you know the medical examiner community at one point was just had a blanket mission to abolish corner systems and then of course, when a coroner hears that, they're not going to uh, fall in love with the medical examiner community. So there was really a great divide between those two types of systems. Our office here in Las Vegas is a little unique because we're somewhat of a hybrid system. We're called the Clark County Office of the Coroner slash Medical Examiner, which represents who we are. We have a coroner who obviously I'm the coroner, and so I'm the you know chief administrator, the department head. But We have full-time forensic pathologists who are all board certified, and they do the practice of medicine. So we don't have here, I'm not a physician, and our physicians practice medicine, which I think is one of the criticism of coroner systems. If you have a coroner that muddles in the practice of medicine and influences the medical doctors in their findings, that's an inappropriate system. So it's a balance between running the office and, and letting the doctors practice medicine and me staying out of that area and just making sure that they have the staffing and the equipment and the, and the overall resources to get their job done. And I imagine that I mean, part of the reason for the debate here is that you know, if you are a forensic pathologist, you're like, well, why should I answer to somebody who isn't 
a board-certified forensic pathologist? Where, how does that organization benefit me and my work? And I think that's a real issue. So how do you work with your forensic pathologist, and how do you address that kind of a concern? Sure. I think, you know, it can be a real issue, but I think if you have people in positions that are doing what they should be doing, it isn't a real issue. And I'll give you an example of that. When you look at hospitals, I'm not aware of any hospitals, at least in our area, who have medical doctors as the CEO, right? So that's kind of how how I relate the corner position. You're a department head, you run the office, you're a manager, right? Certainly, if you're a medical examiner, you have more knowledge in the forensic side of it, or if you're a former police officer, as I am, you have more knowledge in the investigative side of it. But the one thing that you usually don't have is somebody, no matter who that person is or what their qualifications are, somebody that does have extensive uh, investigative experience and extensive medical experience. Those two are, are kind of like black and white. And that's what we do in medical legal offices, right? We investigate and we practice medicine. So again, going back to everybody being appropriate in their position, I'm not a physician. I shouldn't be influencing the practice of medicine. And that that's what's important. And I think that both systems can be successful. And really, it comes down to there's only around 450 board-certified forensic pathologists in the entire United States. The need for forensic pathologists is probably, you know, some of the papers that were published is around 12 or 1,300 in the United States to cover all forensic autopsies. So to advocate and to think that it's a good idea to pull the forensic pathologist out of the autopsy suite and have them sit behind a desk and deal with budget hearings and personnel issues and, you know, building issues and, and just the basics of running an office, as I have to do every day, is somewhat ridiculous. There's no reason for it. If we're that short with forensic pathologists, why would we advocate to have them be managers? I think it's more appropriate to advocate to have them practice medicine. That's what their training was for. So again, there's pros and cons. You know, although I'm a coroner, I've never been traveling around the country advocating for coroner systems. I think there's there's benefits to both and and there's very good offices under both systems. I mean, I think if you asked anybody in, in the medical legal world, we are a coroner's office, but we operate more similarly to a stereotypical medical examiner's office. So that's the big rub. And this debate comes down often to what we have to do. Statutorily, coroners and medical examiner's office, one of our primary responsibility is to determine the cause and manner of death. So not everybody agrees with this. This is part of the debate. Um, I think most medical examiners would agree that the cause should be determined by a board-certified forensic pathologist. The, determining the cause of death is the practice of medicine, so that should be done by a medical doctor. And I think most people agree with that. In a lot of states, that's the law. But there's also other circumstances where I believe it is appropriate for a coroner to determine cause, and I think most people would if they really look at the situation. But the determination of the manner is where it gets a little unique, because in a lot of jurisdictions, the forensic pathologist determines the cause, and then the coroner determines the manner. So that should be done at least in consultation with the forensic pathologist, but you don't need a doctor to determine the manner. That's more of an investigative finding. 
right? So the car sure. is the practice of medicine. So that is a big debate in the medical examiner community. They're going to tell you that the cause and manner should be determined by a medical examiner and nobody else. And in the coroner community, they'll tell you that the cause should be determined by a medical examiner, but the, the manner should be more taking the medical findings, working with the forensic pathologist, and then putting the investigative eye on it and ultimately coming up with the manner of death. So again, I don't advocate necessarily for one or the other. In, in our office, we're a coroner systems and our doctors determine the cause and manner. They determine both. I have the statutory authority to determine the manner, but we do that together. And the majority of the cases are pretty straightforward and the doctor just determines the manner. And when there's questionable cases and manner determinations, ultimately I have that authority, but I've <laughs> never once went against the doctor's findings. We have always come to a consensus. And when we do have these more complicated cases, when it comes to the manner determination, we have our doctors and I and maybe some other staff in the room, and we come to a, an agreement about what the manner should be. So that's a big part of the debate. And in my opinion, yeah. it really comes down to egos more than anything. I think the the bottom line is, as Dr. Greg Davis said, you quoted him earlier about something to the effect of, you know, we shouldn't focus on our differences, but focus on our commonalities. And I couldn't agree more because we're really all trying to do the same thing. And if we continue to debate and argue about it, it continues to put a wedge between these two systems. And it doesn't do well for the medical legal profession. We should be working together. The medical examiners should be training the coroners and training the medical legal investigators, not arguing with them and, and fighting about who should be doing what. I've always said that there's really two factors to any well-operated coroner or medical examiner's office, and that is a good manager and a good lead forensic pathologist, whether that's simply a lead forensic pathologist or it's the chief medical examiner who is a forensic pathologist. And what the system is called and which of those two positions is subordinate to the other um, is very important to a lot of people, but usually that comes down to the egos. And I think that if those two positions are doing what they should do and they are working together and they respect each other's role in a medical legal office, that's the, kind of the first step to the recipe of a successful medical legal office. Yeah, so I think your cause and manner discussion is really hitting the nail on the head in many ways. I'm going to put two things back to you. One is, I mean, I've been in the room with not only medical examiners, but other medical professionals talking about how to do interpretation. And they're very open to the fact that, you know, there also is variation with respect to, you know, if one particular forensic pathologist were trained under this particular professor or this particular person and another one trained in a different way, their language and even their interpretations can vary and sometimes fairly substantially, even in cause and certainly in manner. And the other thing that I think is interesting, and I'd like to know whether you think my speculation is true, and that is that because coroners, in your case, I know you're appointed, but you're also somebody who I'm sure you pay close attention to the small P and big P, whatever you call it, political things that are going on in Clark County and more broadly, when you make a manner determination, you can actually feel a little bit more confident, shall we say? when it might be a little controversial. 
I know this has come up with respect to conducted energy weapons, uh, tasers, but it also comes up in a lot of other times. Uh, any kind of police-involved uh, shooting is going to be sensitive. And to some extent, I think in corridor systems, there might be more willingness to say, hey, I have a certain level of not only knowledge, but buy-in in terms of my position that somebody who might just be a forensic pathologist and is really just worrying about the medicine may not necessarily have that same level of confidence. Am I onto something there, or is, or is that really not a distinction, you think? Well, I think it can be a distinction. I think that kind of takes away from the profession of forensic pathology, which is something that I don't prefer to do because there are certainly forensic pathologists that have the knowledge and, and maybe more knowledge in the investigative process than some coroners. You know, one of the things that I've heard ever since I got into this profession, and frankly, when I was in law enforcement, I heard the same thing was that, oh, anybody can be elected to coroner. You know, the to local tow truck driver could be elected to coroner. And, you know, I hear medical examiners say that on a fairly regular basis. And frankly, I think it's insulting. And there's a lot of us that really try to, you know, we're accredited, we're certified, we go through training, we try to do the best job we can do. And I'm sure somewhere in some rural town in America that some tow truck driver got elected to coroner at one point, right? Well, sure. okay, let's move past it. There's training standards. There's different standards that we have to live by. And let's hope that somebody that knows nothing about the profession doesn't get elected. I'm sure it's going to happen. We can always criticize who gets elected, but the bottom line is you really have to look at what they're doing and how they're doing it. And apart from their titles, are they operating under nationally accepted standards? Are their offices accredited? Are their staff members certified? I mean, there's a quite a few people that are on federal working groups that I've worked very closely with over the last probably 10 to 12 years. And I think that's what has become the most important issue to deal with is getting offices accredited, getting the individuals certified, and just making sure that we can up the standards and the practice within the medical legal profession. So I, I think that you know, what we're trying to do, and there's quite a few people that are trying to do this. There's some old school people that want to continue to fight about whether or not the system should be a coroner or medical examiner system. But I think the majority of our community at this point has realized that it just does our entire profession harm when we're fighting. Like Dr. Davis said, our common goals are all the same, and that's what we should focus on and, and really move past it and, and build up the standard of practice for all medical legal offices. So one of the things that's interesting in terms of the differences between coroners and medical examiners, I think, is that coroners tend to be county-based and medical examiners are more likely to be state or regional-based. And there is an argument to be made that a state-based system, whether you call it a coroner or a medical examiner, especially in an era where we have a shortage of forensic pathologists, there might be some advantages there in terms of economies of scale and of that nature. I know in your case, of course, you know, Clark County is large enough. You actually have multiple forensic pathologists on staff. So it really isn't a question of scale for Clark County. But in some cases, uh, what strategies has uh, IACME and the coroner's community developed to try to deal with this issue of I'm in the isolated rural county coroner and I may not have the resources necessary to deal with a, a caseload problem or 
a more significant incident or something of that nature. That we don't really promote certain systems within the IACME because in the IACME, as I think you mentioned, is the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners. We don't necessarily promote types of systems, and no system fits all jurisdictions. And I'll use Nevada as an example. We have, I think, 2.7 million people in our entire state, and 2.2 million of them are, are in Clark County. So our other medical examiner slash coroner system is Washoe County, which is the Reno area, and they're 500 miles from us. So to set up a state system in our state, the question is, is the state system based in Las Vegas? Is it based in Reno or Washoe County? Where is it based? Who's going to control that? And which of those two agencies is going to give up their authority and say, okie dokie, we'll go to a state system? And is it necessary? I mean, we're, we're entirely separate governmental units. So to think that we're going to merge and to think that the economy of scale would be beneficial from that point, I think is probably not the best idea. I mean, let's say that Las Vegas or Clark County became the seat of a of a state agency to think that we're going to be able to manage, you know, 7 or 800,000 people in northern Nevada and their system from 500 miles away, it's just probably not the best idea. So we're we certainly wouldn't advocate for that type of system. But if you take maybe a different state that struggles with getting forensic pathologists, even in their state, I know there's a few, Wyoming, Montana, I believe, has have had some problems getting forensic pathologists even in the state in the past. You know, maybe that's a better system to have a more regionalized approach where they can have a state medical examiner system or forensic autopsy center, and the coroners could serve as more the local liaison, but send all of their forensic autopsies to one place in the state so they don't have to try to set up a full-scale morgue in four or five not-so-populated areas throughout the state. So there's there's different models that would work, and it's really state-by-state state dependent. And, not every, and it has a lot to do with where's the population and, and how difficult it is to recruit forensic pathologists into their communities. So again, it really depends on the state and where the population is. And I think the face of the medical legal profession and even the systems is not going to change and we're not going to successfully make it change if we just say it needs to be a medical examiner system or it needs to be a coroner system. I think that they really need to look at the, the regional approach and determine what's best based on their population and really just the geographic area of, of, of each of those those systems. And I think a lot of states are doing that. I think that we're going to see a lot more regionalization in the next couple decades, and it's really going to be a matter of survival. Uh, you know, the population of forensic pathologists is doing nothing but decreasing. So we already have about a third of what we need. And that's, as a matter of fact, Randy Hanslick authored a paper that really gives the current state of the forensic pathologist community and yeah. becoming a bigger problem. We're not the only country that's facing these same issues either, and not the only country that uses coroner-type systems. The United Kingdom and Canada, at the very least, are coroner-based, and they're both working to try to do quality improvement in their medical legal death investigation systems within the coroner context, though. They're not really uh, looking beyond that. They're saying, hey, we have a coroner system that we like, uh, but we want to do improvements in medical legal death investigation. 
and they are pursuing improvement based on that framework. Right. If you look at the UK, they're a coroner system, but the coroner has to be a lawyer. You know, is that the direction that we'll end up? I don't think it's a secret that they're a little older than we are as a country, right? And 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 there may be a reason why they evolved into having lawyers be the coroners. Maybe they wanted to develop some qualifications. That certainly takes care of the legal part of the medical legal community. And there's not enough forensic pathologists there either. They have fewer for forensic pathologists per capita than we do in the United States. And, you know, who knows what the system's going to evolve to, but we've got to do something different because the forensic pathologists are are becoming few and far between. And to regionalize and make sure that we can deploy forensic pathologists where they're needed throughout the country is probably just got to happen. And John, that goes along with back to the cause and manner determination. When I said earlier that the cause of death should be done by a forensic pathologist or should be determined by a forensic pathologist as as it should be considered the practice of medicine, there's some exceptions to that and some very justifiable exceptions. And I'll give you an example. In rural America, you have coroners or you have medical examiners, or maybe you have physicians that are called medical examiners who are not even actually forensic pathologists. When you look at the state of Ohio, I think they have 88 counties. I may have that number wrong, but in the state of Ohio, to be the coroner, to run for election, you have to be a medical doctor. And that doesn't mean you have to be a forensic pathologist. Very few of them are forensic pathologists, but you could be an OBGYN and run for coroner. So that's something that a lot of the medical examiners that I spoke to or have talked to over the years, they dislike that system even more than they dislike the non-physician coroner system because the problem with having, a, let's say, an OBGYN serve as the coroner is because they're a doctor, people tend to believe them. Right? They can criticize the non-physician coroner and just use the old tow truck driver analogy and say, oh, they're not a physician, so they don't know what they're talking about. But now you have an OBGYN managing medical legal offices, and they're a doctor, and they're going to be determining the cause and manner of death when they don't have any training in the medical legal profession. So that's a system that it can be successful, certainly, because the OBGYN slash coroner can do what I do, which is stay out of the area of forensic pathology and let the experts determine the cause of death. But that doesn't always happen. So you may have that medical doctor that muddles in the cause of death and they don't have any training or education in the forensic pathologist area. But but back to that example of the cause of death being determined by a non-physician, I'll give you an example where that happens all throughout America. And that is you take some of these more rural areas and frankly, there's plenty of very populated areas that do the same thing. And if you have a motor vehicle accident and you have two people dead and there's dismemberment and it's very obvious that they died as a result of the car accident, right? Well, the question is, do you need to send that decedent to a board certified forensic pathologist to be able to determine the cause and manner of death, right? And the answer is probably not. I think best practices with unlimited resources, you would, but there's thousands of deaths that are like that where these communities don't have the money to pay a forensic pathologist three to $5,000 to do an autopsy on a motor vehicle accident where it's very obvious 
their cause of death is going to be something like blunt force injuries and the manner of death is going to be an accident, right? You don't necessarily need a doctor to determine that. Now, the people that would disagree with that, and frankly, I disagree with it too. I think they should be seen by a doctor, but I also understand why they're not because they have to manage their resources. And if a if a coroner's office has a budget to do 100 autopsies in a year and 50 of them are motor vehicle accidents and there's you know other deaths that are a higher priority to do an autopsy, guess what? They're not going to do an autopsy on motor vehicle accidents and that decedent may not even see a forensic pathologist. And frankly, we've been talking about doing a study on that is looking at, you know, having the cause and manner determined by a non-physician on a hundred cases and then having that same type of case see a forensic pathologist and actually doing an autopsy on those. And I would venture to say that it's going to be almost identical. The cause and manner is always going to be blunt force injuries and the manner is going to be the accident. And some opponents to that concept may say, well, what if they died of a natural death and that led to the accident? And there's so many what ifs that people tend to believe the medical community by just what ifing it to death. So it, it happens across the country and it's really a matter of managing your resources and just not being able to do autopsies on every single death that we deal with. Yeah. I think you and Randy and Greg and myself that the top three issues facing both medical examiner systems and coroner systems are uh, accreditation, professional certification, and the shortage of forensic pathologists. First, I'd like to ask you, do you agree that those top issues and also kind of what other issues are out there that you think are important cross-the-board improvements in medical legal death investigation? I agree with all three of those issues being some of the top issues that plague medical legal communities or medical legal offices, but most of them come down to the number one issue, which is funding. I can't think of too many, and I'm sure there's some, but I can't think of too many government agencies that are underfunded like coroners and medical examiner systems are underfunded. And a lot of that is at the local level, um, but I'll also tell you a lot of it's at the federal level. If you look at federal grant money and federal support, the medical legal community has next to nothing when it comes to comparing them to police, fire, other forensic science disciplines like DNA, toxicology. There's no home at the federal government for the medical legal community. You know, if you look at law enforcement, it's the Department of Justice, right? If a law enforcement agency is so underfunded and they can't do what they're supposed to do, who comes in? The Department of Justice comes in and they can make some very good recommendations. But at the in the medical legal community, there's no one at the federal government that has any oversight or really even has any responsibility for the medical legal profession. I will tell you it's getting better. And I think that a lot of the efforts that people like Randy and Greg and the SWIG MDI and the National Commission on Forensic Science and now the OSAC under NIST, the OSAC subcommittees are making some progress and agencies like the CDC and the NIJ and a few other federal agencies, they're starting to develop some grant programs that are helping the medical legal community. And it's taken a long time, but it's starting to happen. So until there's more funding dedicated to this profession, 
you're not going to increase the supply of forensic pathologists because if we pay them 150,000 a year and they can go be a clinical pathologist and work in a hospital for three or 400,000 a year, guess where most of them are going? <laughs> They're not going yeah. into the medical legal offices. So most issues related to the kind of disjointed systems that we have come down to funding. There's just not enough funding to support a model system in most jurisdictions. I'm very lucky here in Clark County. We have a pretty darn good support from our elected officials and you know we could always use more there's no doubt about that but for the most part we have what we need we're accredited all of our staff that can be certified are certified and our county supports that and that's very beneficial but that's not the case in most areas these government agencies people think government units have a lot of money they don't you know when you're competing for dollars with public safety police and fire we're going to lose that debate when you're competing for dollars with, you know, the Department of Family Services who handle kids that don't have parents in the foster care system, if I'm making that decision, I'm not putting my money into the coroner system. I'm putting my money into the Department of Family Services. So it's understandable why we don't have the funding, but that usually is the source of a lot of those problems. Sure. Well, I appreciate that perspective, John, and I appreciate you being on Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals today, and, and telling us a little bit more about the issues facing both coroner systems and medical examiner systems, and also sharing some of your personal experience as the coroner of Clark County, Nevada. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you, John. I appreciate your time, and thank you for focusing on this important issue. Next week on Just Science, Bobby Joe O'Neill, Chief Deputy Coroner of Charleston, South Carolina, discusses the important role forensic nurses can play as leadership in MDI. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>